Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Changes. My name is Annie McManus. Oh, we've got such an exciting episode for you this week. Before I get onto it, I wanted to let you know quickly about a book that I have written. My debut novel is called Mother Mother. And um, if you're interested in this podcast, you might be interested in pre-ordering the book. And you can do it right now. It comes out at the end of May. It's literary fiction. It's based in Belfast and follows the kind of life of a young girl growing up in West Belfast in the 80s and 90s and then disappearing in the present. And we're taken on these parallel journeys with this girl who's now a woman and her her kind of journey going somewhere that we don't really know. And her son, TJ, who is trying to find her and trying to figure out a lot about his life in the process. It's quite emotional. It's quite a roller coaster emotionally. A lot of my friends uh, who have read it have said they've been in bits crying. So if you're into those type of books, you might like this one. Um, It was an absolute joy to write very exciting very private so it's kind of weird to be talking about it out loud and to get my head around the fact that it's going to be a book that anyone can read come may but there it is so mother mother my debut novel dropping at the end of may and you can pre-order it right now let's get on with the show shall we my guest on this week's episode of changes is billy piper an award-winning actress and now director. Billy has been in the public eye since she was 14 years old when she became a pop star, at the time making her the youngest person to ever get a UK number one. She has since turned to acting, starring in Doctor Who, Secret Diary of a Call Girl, Collateral, which earned her a BAFTA nomination, and multiple films. She won six Best Actress awards, including an Olivier Award for her performance in the play Yerma, and last year starred in and co-created I Hate Susie, a series on Sky Atlantic, which got five-star reviews, and you might have seen billboards all over the country with her face on it. Billy portraying a kind of former child star whose life is turned upside down when her phone is hacked. This year, Billy will see the release of her film Rare Beasts, which she wrote and directed herself about a woman in crisis. It's absolutely brilliant. I loved it. It's so sharp in terms of how it's written. Um, it's so moving. It's very kind of surreal in some bits, quite trippy, which I liked as well. And just so unbelievably impressive for Billy to do pretty much every aspect of that film. She's drawn to complicated female characters and she gives us an insight in this conversation into why she thinks that is looking back at her own life and her experiences. 
She's a mother to three children. She's been married and divorced twice, including to DJ Chris Evans. We all know about that. We saw it all in the papers and we talk about it here, as well as family life and the changes she's been through both professionally and personally. I feel like Billy Piper would be the most fun in the pub ever. I kind of wanted to go to the pub with her so bad at the end of this conversation. She clearly has a mischievous streak. I was very enticed and excited by that. So yeah, let's hear her now in conversation with me just a week ago. Enter the podcast, Billy Piper. Billy, hello. Hi. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. I'm Mac. What a legend. What's happening? Are you all right? I'm all right, yeah. I am... Um... Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> were, you, were you sick over the weekend? Yeah, I was sick. I was, um, I was sick. I had a UTI, just the whole thing. Oh, man. Full I'm of so inflammation sorry. and infection. Listen, we'll get it all out. I've got the the, the most crippling period pains <laughs> of my life. I've just had to pop two pills in front of Billy. That's the first thing I did. It's like, excuse me while I eat some paracetamol and then I we can know. continue. It's, and it gets worse, isn't it, as you get older? What is that? Is that a, I've been trying to think about that and speak to my friends about the idea of periods getting worse as you get older. Is it a, is it a kind of an alarm, like nature's own alarm bell to tell you that your time having kids is running out? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I haven't Googled it because I'm so, I am so frightened of menopause oh. um, that if I get into a rabbit hole with that one, I, I'm not sure if I come back anytime soon. And I'm I'm just actively trying not to constantly be online Googling, you know, mm. am I dying, which is the <laughs> subtext of every, every Google search I ever do. Does this mean I am dying? Yeah. Yeah. Am I dying just over and over and over again? Well, they, my period pains have definitely got worse as I've got older. Definitely. And, and you've had kids as well, right? I've had I kids think. and I always was one of those people who didn't really understand in school when you had friends who like couldn't do PE or like, you know, were debilitated from period pains. Mm. I was like, okay, that's weird because I've never had that. And now I really get it. Yeah. It's yeah. it's bad. It's bad. It's like the last hurrah. Yeah. Yeah before it's all gone yeah um just on menopause I have spoken to people on this podcast about it and I do think that there is some positive aspects like what like after it you're free oh oh okay yeah but it could go on for like I think my mum was going through the menopause for about seven years oh god yeah because she had perimenopause which is obviously something I'm going to mimic because I've literally physically mimicked my mother my entire life right so um I mean, even our births are exactly the same. Yeah. Um, so I think it could that might happen, and and it's sort of I think she I think she started going through menopause in uh, mid forties. Mm. Yeah, perimenopause. That's kind of normal. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My sister reckons she got her first heart flush. She called me a while ago and was like, something happened. Like I was possessed and I went bright pink and started sweating and I didn't know what was going on. And she reckons it was her first heart flush. And again. It feels very debilitating. Like you can't be in a room with people. Like you're mental. You don't basically. know what you'll do. No. No. But this is the thing about it, isn't it? Because I, I just feel like I, I already know those hot flushes. I know that, like that mania. I'm. What more do I need to know about that? Why must it continue? <laughs> I'm constantly finding ways to sort of curve that. Um. So it. That's why I'm getting a bit like, ugh. I don't, I don't, I don't need any, I don't need any more of that. Yeah, no, I hear you. 
Well, listen, we got loads to talk about today and let's start with the movie, the film, which I watched on Sunday night and just kind of found myself sitting on the sofa all kind of like quite tense, like curled up at the end, just like it really, really got me. The whole film did. I loved it. Yeah, I want to talk about it lots, but oh, great. it's important to say that this is totally your creation, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Started writing it after my second son was born um so he's almost nine now and then had that um very common story of trying to get it off the ground and it not really working and finally five years later it's in production and then I'm directing it and then it's almost released about uh 10 times and then um I'm hoping that finally we'll see it on cinema screens in May so it's been a really really long journey of holding your nerve basically what compelled you to want to write this film I think my experiences journeying out my late 20s into my early 30s um, which felt really significant to me and has basically informed every bit of work I've done since Um, so that period of time which felt like a huge well like a rude awakening really but I think the more specifically for this film it was the fact that the world felt like culturally it felt like we were being told over and over again that as women we can sort of do everything have everything balance everything be wildly successful all this sort of pointing you this way and actually all I could see around me was sort of common crisis whereby my friends were doing exceptionally well professionally but their lives were completely falling apart and their mental health was really really suffering as a result of this sort of messaging that I personally find really unhelpful. And did you write it thinking you were going to direct it? No, I didn't. I wrote it thinking I'll be in it as an actor and my friend will direct it, um, who has sort of similar tastes to me and similar instincts, but who is a guy. Um, And the more real it was becoming, and I could see sort of every frame of it, and I just thought, I have to tell the story myself. And it was really just a lacking confidence and, and frankly, um, experience as a director that was holding me back. But I think when you get a sort of vote of confidence and you've got that sort of fire in your belly about it, it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. I interview a lot of people who obviously write music and one of the kind of common things that seem to happen with writing and the act of writing a song is that you write it and then you look back at it and you're like, oh, that's how I was feeling. It's kind of, it's confessional in, you know, unconsciously. Sometimes you don't even realise you're not trying to do that. So with Rare Beast, were you surprised afterwards by stuff that came out yeah. of you? Yeah. Yeah, more so now than when I first did it. Because it's because of COVID, it's like had this like weird sort of two year release plan. And it's when I look back at it now it says something very different to me. Whereas at the time it felt like a story about a a very dysfunctional relationship and how we survive our parents' relationship and how they've sort of framed relationships and how how much of a struggle it is to then take this sort of more modern route. Mm. Um, But actually now when I reflect on the film, I feel like, God, but this is very much about oppression and mental health. Mm. And it feels like sort of more about a one woman story than it does about, you know, or this sort of anti-rom-com genre banter that 
people want to give it because it makes it easier for people to receive, I guess. Mm. Um, uh, actually, it really is just about what it costs to be a woman, I think. Mm. I want to talk to you loads more about the film and about the contents of the film mm-hmm. and the inspiration behind the film. But this conversation, the foundations are changed. Yeah. So we have the three mm-hmm. questions we ask every week. And the first question is a change that affected you. It's kind of it's quite obvious as a child. <laughs> One that impacted your life in a great way. What could that be, Billy Piper? <laughs> Yeah, but it's funny because when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about other things and actually, and I was like, that's how messed up it is. It's like, oh, what was more significant than that? So yes, the thing that would change me in such enormous ways and ways that I can never really get back was fame as a, as a child, as an early teenager. Mm. Um, and I sort of look at my life in two parts, like pre-fame and post-fame, um, that feels like they're, they're like two very different versions of life for me. Could you kind of give us a picture of the pre and post? I mean, I can easily imagine the post, but what was your life like before fame? Who, What were you like as a kid? Well, my life before was, um, I'm one of four. Uh, my dad was a, is a builder. My mum was a housewife. We were born and raised in Swindon and life was very, I would say, simple, um, normal, whatever that means, working class, going to school. But I was really um, very, I'd say, high achieving and wanted to be good and do good. Well, that sort of paints the picture of me as a a child. Mm. Then into my teens, just before I became famous, it was year seven, um, white mask. (laughs) eternal right smoking loads of cigarettes snogging boys in sort of um, boy racer cars just really really fun and like the birth of emotions isn't it or at least it Mm. feels that way you know Mm. your first love your first intense relationship with another woman a platonic relationship but it it is something that's quite unique isn't it um Mm. and you know trying to shirk your parents and where did you come in the kind of chronology of your siblings i'm the eldest the eldest right yeah yeah i'm the eldest and there was quite a a big gauge gaps in my brother's seven years younger than me but my younger sister is 10 years younger than me so i did a lot of childcare with them right and were you into that yeah i loved it I really loved it. I love pretending to be a mum and sometimes I'd pretend that my younger sister was my own kid. And those were the days when we used to like go into town on a bus as a 12-year-old with a six-year-old. <laughs> Just things that you would never, like go out, take your sister out all day with your mates who were like 13 and smoke fags around her and, you know, dress her up and pretend she was mine so yeah, I did. I did like it. I really yeah. liked it. Yeah, that picture painted is kind of you quite independent. You were quite like independent in that you were going out, you were seeing your friends, but you were still obviously playing a big role at home mm. in terms of helping mm. out. So you went to theatre school, right? Yeah. And you just got plucked. That's what it sounds like. You know, someone saw you on a magazine and was like, "Right, let's let's try her out. Let's see if she can sing. You could sing. Next thing you know, you're signed." Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, li- that's literally it. How old were you? I think I was 13 turning 14. Fuck, so, that's young. I thought I, it was older than that. I thought it was 15 for some reason. No, it was, I think I signed my record deal around the same time as turning 14. And what did that mean for your day-to-day life? Um, it meant that I left school, which was great. I loved that. Even though I enjoyed school, obviously the opportunity to be um, a, a grown-up was way more appealing. So it meant that I was recording an album in somewhere in Surrey, doing a lot of the groundwork, so learning how to do interviews and doing nappy night tours um, wow. and school tours. So touring really hard. In fact, I don't think I've ever worked as hard as I did then since. Not even Mm. with, you know, a few acting jobs cooking at once. It was the the most punishing schedule ever. I think it would rival any sort of businessman. So you were touring, so obviously you were leaving home, but did you move out of your house as well? Yeah, I lived in a hotel. I was sort of living between a hotel and um, my A&R woman, Cheryl. I was living on her floor in her house and then I got together with a guy who had a flat in Kilburn so I moved into his flat when I was probably 15 and then we broke up but I kept the flat so I had my own home at 15 years old wow and um and yeah it was just a two bed in Kilburn and that was my life I went to work for 18 hours a day got home got food from the garage and um, watched EastEnders, you know. Did you miss your family? I did miss my family. I really did miss them. Um, I also had such autonomy and, and mm. independence that that was really exciting and sort of what I always wanted, which was to live my own life away from my family, away from my hometown, pursuing things that filled my thoughts and my soul every day Mm. and looking back now Billy with hindsight at that mad time in your life how do you think it changed you I think I saw a lot of things at a very young age and I think some of that can be really good and informative and it means you see parts of life that you wouldn't normally see maybe ever um and (laughs) Can you hear that? Yeah, I can. That's the whole crew. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great. And um, it's it's real life. It's real life. And um and then in other ways, I would say it made me quite cynical, quite jaded, um and um very r- reclusive and incredibly paranoid. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So those are the sort of negative <laughs> changes and things that arguably sort of affected my personality for the rest of my life. Things that I've tried to um, deal with since. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Annie, I'm sorry. Billy, stop. Oh, my God, please stop apologising. It's life. I just don't understand. Yeah, but I like... I don't understand how, like, when you say, I can't, I am not available today to anyone, I... And and you have a really, like, strong, unconvicted argument where you go, I can't do anything. And they're all like, hey. <laughs> it's exactly the same in my house. It's exactly the same. If I'm working, right, my husband still has to put his head in the door and be like, yeah, but where is my bag? And what have you done with that? And he says he wants to do that. I'm like, that's not my problem because I'm working. That's your problem. But he can't equate. 
He I just can't equate. I know. Anyway, I, I feel your pain is what <laughs> I'm saying. Interruptions are welcome. That's real life. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's got to be said for, for those listening, like that was like record breaking, you know, the statistics in terms of like how young you were when you had your number one, all of that business. It was really an anomaly. It, it was extraordinary at the yeah. time and still, yeah. I suppose, mm. you know, fair dues to you for coming out of it grounded and normal and fully functioning, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well um, done, because that's an achievement. It is. I guess it is. I mean, look, I've had my moments. I just watched that Britney Spears documentary the other day, and um, I just thought, oh, my God, it's it's so easy to not come out of that at all. Mm. And why anyone is surprised she is the way she is, or although everyone's obviously completely surprised by the conservatorship, like, that's obviously completely yeah. mental and awful. But imagining that anyone could come out of that experience well is sort of shocking to me. I mean, I had it on a very sort of, I would say, a small scale, even though I had a big success in the UK. Like, her success was worldwide, you know. Mm. It's a Mm. totally different level of fame. But anyway, yeah, it is. Uh, I'm, I'm really. I, th- I, f- I think about it a lot, and I reflect on it a lot, and I think I've met some really good people along the way who have been sort of integral at, in terms of my um, getting through or over things. So you actively walked away from that career. Yeah. And can you talk me through that decision and how you you managed to do that? Because again, as a young person, that must have been hard with adults all around you encouraging you to stay in. Yeah. In terms of in your label. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's a combination of things. I think at eighteen, I was so angry and so exhausted and burnt out and so there was this real streak of rebellion. So it was a bit like fuck you to everyone. Um, Mm. And I felt quite uncompromising about that in a way that uh, it's a certain type of um, late teen, early 20s energy that sort of Mm. then can carry on. Um, But it was, I also um, had 
met and been in a relationship with Chris Evans at that age and he was someone who who knew the industry who knew the world who knew how important it was for me to have some semblance of normal life um even though our life was completely I say that completely wild in comparison to other people's lives yes we had the means to be quite wild but but also we were I felt like I was living out a lot of my uni years or something because we'd spent a great deal of time traveling and drinking and meeting people that um, I wouldn't have had access to otherwise because also I'd become so reclusive before I met him. So it felt like for me, it felt like a very healing ta- healing time, although the world looks upon it or looked upon it as a, a very reckless time, which is so ironic, isn't it? It's just it's crazy to think that when I was at my happiest as a teen everyone thought I was at my saddest Mm. yeah there's there's you know talking about that being happy and just being able to be yourself without being fully groomed and fully made up and like like like, you know presentable in the in the world of the media it's it's similar to Britney like oh absolutely she dressed down she wanted to look like how she wanted and she got crucified for that did you feel some of that yeah because I'd been well I'd only known like my life as being sort of groomed and um, spending hours and hours a day in hair and makeup. That wasn't the issue, really. The issue was the projection, the image that everyone wanted to project, which was one of, I'm a good girl, I'm clean, I take my life seriously, I am there to inspire young girls that's an enormous responsibility and um and so there was an image that was everyone wanted to sort of protect and I was just a teenager in my mind having thought new thoughts a lot of them weren't positive you know and yet the projection was positivity strength success and that wasn't what was happening in my mind and so it was that that I want I rejected so viciously in the end Mm. But but going back to like what it was that sort of um, inspired me to walk away, and I think a lot of that came from having that sort of healing period with Chris, where he taught me to um, pursue myself and what I wanted to do, and protected me around people who were older um, and wanted had different intentions, different inge- agendas looking back at you know again how that relationship was reported it I mean it feels like you guys had nothing but a respectful mutually respectful relationship and when Mm. you split up it stayed that way there was no acrimony there was just nothing but respect um did you feel like a resistance to that did you feel like people couldn't understand that you were walking away still best friends yeah I think people I think people did find that strange and maybe on some level I found it strange as well, like waiting for something awful to happen. But mm. it's 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 sort of remained respectful. I mean, we don't we don't see each other a great deal at all anymore, but he's since had like five kids and I've got three and our lives are just you know, you know what mm. it's like. It's like course, when yeah. do you see anyone? I've always got really fond memories and a lot of love and warmth there. Um mm. it felt felt like a really important moment in my life so you then went from being famous for being a musician to being really famous for being an actress when you were in Doctor Who how did that fame differ like the new acting fame to the music fame 
Well, I felt like I was less of a charlatan because I was doing something that I I really had trained in and studied as a child and it was the reason I went to theatre school and it was what I ultimately wanted to do. That felt way more satisfying. Mm. It was it was really good for like the first year and then I did Doctor Who which was obviously brilliant and and has changed my life only for the better. But at that period of time of being in Doctor Who, the fame was sort of reminded me a lot of the fame of being a pop star. And um, and then that feeling became uncomfortable and I wanted to flee again. Mm. Yeah. How did being a mother change you? It's been the biggest, the most affecting change I'll, I think I'll ever experience, ever. And... Yeah, nothing touches it. Nothing touches it at all for me. Other people might feel quite differently, but for me, it's it's like I was asleep for emotionally asleep for twenty years. Wow! And now it's I'm sort of sort of wide awake for for all of it. For me, so much of like my experience as a child, or or my own issues weren't recognizable to me at all until I had kids and then it was like okay. such a unbelievable trigger it did it felt like an again another sort of rude awakening um and and a journey back into my childhood and and recognizing things about myself that I had no real conscious idea about mm. you know that that's been my my journey with it was that a difficult like process or was that something you welcomed at the time? I think I'm still going through it because I've just I've 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 got three children. I've got a 12 year old boy, an eight year old boy and a two year old girl. And I'm going through it on a completely different level with my daughter because she's female. And and I think it's somehow drawing me closer to myself actually yeah. and things that um I can't take care of in myself when I imagine myself as a child as I remember myself I I do a fuckload of therapy so they they're one of the things that you do in in the therapy that I do is that they you sort of you go into your inner child and you soothe your inner child and it's something I've always struggled with because it's so cringy for me and it also reminds me so much of acting that it's just like hang on am I am I actually tapping into these emotions or do I feel like there's a sort of performance element to this that is not what I need right now um so I've already really struggled with it like struggled with taking care of my little person self in certain moments of my life where somebody should have been doing that um, and then I've had a daughter, now I've had a daughter, and it's just like, it's like a direct line to my younger self. Wow. And I think that's largely good, but I think there's some parts of it that are a bit like, oh, you know, like, is she aware of how meaningful this is to me <laughs> in, in ways that aren't just about her, you know what I mean? Like... Yeah. And is she, is she aware of, like, the responsibility she has? I mean, in so many aspects of our life as well, because of, like, she has brought so much joy into our family and and has sort of pieced us all together in a really beautiful way. Um, she's not really aware of 
that. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's like this big, this she's become this really big thing to us all. And that's really lovely, but it's also a lot of pressure that she's completely unaware of and yeah. we'll have to keep an eye on. We will um, responsibly have to keep an eye on. So, yeah, I'm definitely on a new journey with that, having just had a daughter. For your second change, you talked about therapy as something that Mm -hmm. has impacted you. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit more about that, if you don't mind, just your journey about starting it and, mm-hmm. and how it's changed you. So I, I did a bit when I was 16, I think. Um, I, ha- I developed quite a bad eating disorder for a couple of years. And my mum took me to our local therapist in Swindon, a GP therapist or whatever, and I just rejected it. I thought it was ridiculous and... Um, I hated it. I did like one session and then scoffed at it and then continued battling with my eating disorder for the next 15 years. But um, then in my early 30s, which felt, as I said before, it felt like a very important time in my life, um, I became quite physically ill and lots of things were happening in my life that were... I couldn't not take stock of it. I couldn't not look back and think, okay, these are sort of unhelpful patterns of behaviour or this is something that keeps coming up or why do I feel so strung out or anxious, I guess, um, all the time, like so adrenalised all the time. What is it? And then I started getting twice a week therapy and doing like big workshops and doing sort of outpatient stuff with with the eating disorder so I did a load of it now I'm sort of in the once a week Mm. world but look some of it has been really most of it I would say um as largely as an experience it's really really benefited my life and some of it's really hard and some Mm. of it I wish I'd never really um got into there's still that sort of stigma around being that therapy person like the person who goes you should get therapy or hey why don't you try therapy or even talking openly about it I still feel a bit like oh you know there's there's certainly a stoicism that runs through the core of our family and and there's not a lot of uh, space for that in theory but until they see one of their kids like on their knees and then it's like let's get them into a therapist. (laughs) It takes a complete, like, breakdown for people to sort of take it seriously. And then they're all, you know, all guns. Um, Mentioning your eating disorder, Mm. I watched an interview that you did on Parkinson when you were super young. I don't know, I think it was 2005 or something Mm. like that. I think you've done two and it was maybe your first one. But you had to really explain to him about anorexia and the motivations behind it. And he was asking these questions that made me want to shout at the television and be like, A, why are you expected at that age to sit on national television and have to break down your eating disorder to anyone? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, times have changed since then. I don't think you would be oh asked to God, do that. Yeah. God. But and also your divorce just... and like oh, everything. It was that you had to, you, you, it was just expected of you. And then another thing he said, which did my head in was, 
he talked about marriage. He's like, so will you get married again? You're you're divorced already and you're only 25 or something. And I was like, oh my God, who cares if she gets <laughs> married again or not? Ah, oh, like, and you're so giving and patient and nice about the whole thing. I know, I- but that's the issue. And that it's that giving and the niceness that has made me really angry. Mm. That unboundaried line of questioning I mean, that's not just in an interview. That that's sort of an expectation of maybe of women, certainly of famous women, but I think also of just women who don't have a profile in that in that way. But I look back on that now as well. I look. I'm. I sometimes watch old Jonathan Ross interviews as well, and it's it's not that long ago. But you just. I don't know that you could ask those questions anymore. I just. No. It would feel so tone deaf now mm. the mm. questions that women have had to answer some of it's unforgivable mm. and I think it's fed very much into for me it's fed a, a, into my work a lot that sort of unbelievable um, frustration and axe to grind about how available we have to be all the fucking time a lot of your roles that you play the ones that you've written and the ones that you've chosen involve women who are just going through a lot like looking so intense be it like you know mental health problems or just you know just going through trauma of various kinds or or just kind of an unraveling of sorts why are you drawn to those roles do you think and why do you feel like the need to create those roles because I think people need to see it authentically a lot with sort of female characters in in drama or historically or whatever it's like oh she's anyone who's had a sort of willful moment in their life is chalked up to being mad or a slut or uh, unwell or whatever and I think it's really important that like moving forwards we talk about why those things happen and how it ends there and also that it's okay like Mm. it's totally fine of course these experiences in your life are absolutely maddening it feels like a responsibility of mine. But also I'm more interested in it. I've, yeah. I've only ever seen that stuff in my life. I haven't yeah. seen, in my childhood, I haven't seen a woman really fucking nailing it. I haven't. Yeah. I've mm. I've seen them doing their best, given their circumstances, and it's cost them more than it's cost any other fucker. And they're funnier because of it, they're more interesting because of it, but it's also... It's it's cost them years of their life just living. And mm. I want to talk about that creatively and give it a bit more context, you know. It's more satisfying for me, I think. I, after watching Rare Beast, that's when I, I watched some of the Parkinson interviews and it, it struck me, one of the things that you say to Michael Parkinson is that you're a hopeless romantic. And, yeah. and this, this came just at the end of, of the film, of my favourite line in the film, you were such a ray of light when I met you and I just stole from you every day. Well, that's marriage. <laughs> and then a little bit further, every day I spent with you, a little piece of me died. It's called a relationship. <laughs> like, so, so, so the opposite of being a hopeless romantic. Like, there is romance, I thought, in Rare Beast. Like, yeah. the mum and dad characters, like, this kind of brutal honesty at the end and this kind of need to be near this husband in her deathbed I know. it's fucking heart-wrenching and and so 
utterly romantic, I thought. Yeah, I'm so drawn to romance, but I think I'm drawn to it. And then I enjoy the sort of chaos of it and the inevitable sadness that comes with a lot of it. Um, not all mm. of it, but the fact that you that can sort of completely pull each other apart. You're left like a, a husk of um, your former self. And, and what that what that means and what that takes just to get to the end of it. Yeah, I mean, I've seen I've seen people behave so appallingly in relationships and in the face of rejection, which is something that the film talks a lot about. Is how mm. certainly how men behave in re, in the face of a, uh, rejection, and yet sometimes, if you've shared a great deal of your life with someone, you you want them there with you at the end. Not always, but sometimes, and it's just one of those sort of hopeless, sad, dark truths. Mm. Are you still a hopeless romantic? <laughs> I can't watch that Parkinson interview. I just look at that thing. Actually, I found my locus. I used to keep journals all the time. And I found my journal diary the other day and I was reading back at it at that a similar time in my life. And I just, just found it so hard to read. Mm. I find it like, I don't know who I, I don't know which version of me is more true. I, I Like I look back and I think, God, I, I'm... I just don't even recognise that person. It feels mm. so far away from what's happened since and where I'm at personally. It just feels like, oh, God, I just I, you, I just look great. Oh, you're so shiny and, and like, you like everything. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's a very, like, instinctive thing. It's so cringy, the idea of reading your diary when you're a teenager. Like, I've done the same and you can't not cringe. Oh, good. But I, good. But, oh, no, that's very normal. But it, it it does make sense why you would create the art that you do now, which is just so full of flawed people and yeah. kind of pushing the boundaries of society's norms of what people are supposed to think and feel and, and behave like you know yeah and I would say like I've said this before I would I mean some people watch this film and they're like oh my god they're so awful to each other like do it feels just unnecessarily coarse but I don't know like for me I've grown up in a family where people can be fucking ruthless with each other <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. and especially if they're if they're told no or rejected, I know mm. that world a bit. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, well, it's it's. I think the film will be come maybe a bit divisive on some level, or, and I'm not sure how men will receive it. Quite a lot of guys that I've shown it to don't like it. Surprisingly, right. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely got a lot to say in these years of my life, and not all of it is palatable and it's certainly not shiny how do you want it to make women to feel i just hope that if you have experienced those feelings or thoughts then i just hope it's a relief on some level i think that's always what mm. I, I want with the with anything i do is that some someone can relate to it and that they get a sense of relief from that and that they enjoy seeing parts of their life reflected back at them mm. And I mean, that they don't have to feel guilty and shameful about having a wild streak and being a mother at the school gates. You know right. what I mean? Those two different worlds that people don't like to imagine coexisting because you're a, you know, a mother. <laughs> you know, yeah. which is a professional woman who 
also wants to bake bread for her husband. You know what I mean? Like you can also be, you can be all of those things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the end as well, you know, when, when there's a kind of reckoning of sorts and you say, yeah. you know, you have this confession of wanting a man, you know, yeah. and like at the end of the day, there, the message is in there in the film that it's not totally anti-men, the film at all. You know, essentially you do want a man. Yeah, I think I think that comes a lot from conversations I was having with my friends at the time. One of my mates couldn't confess to having no ambition and just yeah. wanting to be at home taking care of her kids. And then one of my sort of the feminist friend, although we're all sort of feminists, but you know what I mean, the one that was slightly more loud about it, saying, you know, I'm doing all these things that I want to do and doing them really well and going to well and being professional and, and that's going great. But I'm also going home and I have no time for any relationship and I'm really fucking lonely and I would love to f- have a big hug with a man in my bed and feel safe. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and this is another thing that we all fear saying. Yeah. To say out loud, isn't that mad? Isn't that mad? No. Like, it's just the role and the perception of women is changing so quickly well it could be quicker but it's changing quickly and it's kind of like it's all in flux isn't it you know in terms of what women can be yeah absolutely last question what change would you like to affect in yourself or the world around you moving forwards I cannot wait to have a social life again and I'm heavily relying on my social life to manage this high levels of anxiety that I'm experiencing and I I don't think it's remarkable I think everyone's going through it on some level and I'm looking forward to that change I'm really looking forward to have having meaningful meaningful conversations with my mates again where I can like touch their hair and be overbearingly physical with them (laughs) and I'm hoping that that's um gonna help me um sort of psychologically uh, um, yeah I'm hoping that that's going to be a, a positive change moving forwards for everyone by the way yeah yeah I'm dreaming of beer gardens that's dreaming of everyone's dreaming about dreaming of going garden. to the pub at lunchtime yeah and staying there <laughs> I know that's what I say all imagine that I feel like that's my go-to just as a, a mother now like you know when people say what do you miss about not having kids and like being free and single what well, I was never single but free yeah um and it's those like s- spontaneous like pub days oh. where you're like I'm gonna stay for eight hours <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna stay here and that's it and and also there's no like but you're a bad person if you do that. Like, there's yeah. none of There's that. no underlying, like, no, res- burden no of responsibility. Yeah, Guilt. It's yeah. just, it's totally um, free and up for grabs. And yeah. there, is, there is really no downside to it apart from maybe a hangover, but also maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Billy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Annie. It's an absolute pleasure. So, Rare Beasts is out on the 21st of May. I would thoroughly recommend you going and see it, supporting a film that is directed by a woman here in the UK, written by a woman, and starring the woman. It's not very often you get that in this day and age when it comes to movies, and it's something that should be celebrated. And it's just made me really excited 
for the next thing that Billy does. Let us know what you thought of this episode, as always. Last week was Ariel Bruce, a tracing expert who works on Long Last Family and has reunited families all over the world. Chris Hayes said, this is a great story. Ariel is a hero. I've also been through the care system when I was a kid. Also, my mum found my brother after 16 years and being forced to give him up for adoption. I have huge respect for this. Yeah, it felt like a very important story for Ariel to tell. And uh, I just love finding out about these hugely niche careers and kind of opening up people's awareness to the fact that there's things out there that you can do that you maybe never even dreamed of doing. Right, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe and spread the word about changes. I will be back next Monday with Sean King, an American civil rights activist who uses social media to fight for justice for black families. He has 3.8 million followers on Instagram and is looked to by many Americans as a news source. He doesn't come without his controversies though, which we will address. You won't want to miss this one. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by Louise Mason with research from Leila Simone Springer through Rethink Audio. See you next time. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.